where leaders go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. This is where the brightest minds in business come together. Add your unique voice to an exceptional peer group. Come learn from others' diverse perspectives and from our world-class faculty. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is October the 2nd in 2022, and my guest is Sava Kerdemelidis. Sava is the founder and CEO of Crowdfunded Cures, a New Zealand-based charity and open-source pharma decentralized science project. Sava and I are going to have a conversation about the pharmaceutical market and how patents are distorting it. This is yet another deep insight into one of the largest markets in the world, healthcare and into the possible futures using blockchain technology to disrupt it. I'm particularly excited to have Sava on because he's a legal innovator. At the heart of the thesis of Stranded Technologies is that legal innovation can set free technology innovations. This episode will be ultimately discussing how legal innovations like intellectual property rights on the blockchain can improve access to better drugs. With that said, Sava, welcome to the show. Hi, Niklas. Thanks for having me on. Sava, what would you like listeners to know about you? My background is mainly in intellectual property, but I've worked as a in-house lawyer, so around commercial side of things and IP. But this whole area I got into around 2011. And my fiance at the time got really sick with Crohn's disease, and I had a bio background, and I was thinking of like maybe going and doing a PhD and stuff like that. But going online and just looking at all the different treatments out there, I realized there were a lot of treatments that there was a lot of hype about them online, but there wasn't a lot of clinical trial data and particularly things like off patent drugs and diets and supplements and things like that. And I realized that there is some good scientific reasons why these things might work. However, the fact is if you can't use patents and put something within the patent system and enforce a monopoly price, then I knew that there's just no way you can get funding. So there's potentially thousands of treatments out there that could be treatments or cures for diseases. There's lots of examples of these sorts of things, but the entire industry is really focused on just possible patents. Um, so I did my thesis on that and I set up Crowdfunding Cures as a charity to essentially implement some of the ideas in my thesis and particularly this idea that we could use prize-like incentives rather than patents as an alternative to patents. People have been talking about prizes as an alternative to patents for many years, but they hadn't really thought about medicines for things like off-patent drugs, diets, supplements, plant medicines, psychedelics, lifestyle interventions, things like that, which I called unmonopolizable therapies. It's a bit of a long-winded story, but things didn't really pick up steam. I was looking at crowdfunding prizes. There wasn't like a lot of momentum and also life took over and I had to go and do a bit more career and went to London then with the COVID pandemic, there was all this talk around hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and things like that. People are still arguing about that today, even though there's been billions of dollars of public funding. And I realized that there's this massive market failure, basically. And I just had an opportunity to really pick things up. And since then, I've been running with it. I've been involved a little bit with crypto projects for the last few years. Found out about DSI and reached out to Vita Dow, who are a fund for a DAO for funding longevity research. We've partnered with them and partnered with various other organizations in the DSI community with Molecule and what they're doing with IP NFTs. So I'm, I'm their IP advisor at Molecule, VitaDAO, and then also SciDAO, which are looking at open source psychedelics or funding psychedelics, and LabDAO, LabDAO which are looking at basically empowering scientists with access to lab services and, and, and decentralized um, lab services and CROs and things. So. Yeah, just been really excited by DSI and, and was trying to basically launch Crowdfunded Cures as a 
uh, medical impact DAO. Things are looking quite exciting. DeSci is a really high impact use case, I think, for crypto. And crypto has been criticized a lot as like a solution looking for a, a problem. But I think that if we can point, this is a massive problem, as you say, like healthcare is just the biggest industry pretty much out there. It's 20% of US GDP is spent on or wasted on healthcare costs and we've got this aging baby boomer population. I'm very excited about the potential for Web3 and crypto to help solve some of these market failures. Great. You already mentioned decentralized science. To listeners to whom that's new, I also recommend listening to episode 15 of this podcast with Sebastian Brunemeyer, who's also an advisor to Molecule and VitaDAO. How would you describe, Sava, the goal or the mission of decentralized science? I think it's similar-ish to a lot of projects that are out there in the Web3 space, but it's around incentive alignment and helping solve coordination problems. And particularly the refi space and which are people like Gitcoin and Optimism, where they talk about retroactive public goods funding and this idea of getting crypto to solve coordination problems. But ultimately, I think it really comes down to empowering scientists. Scientists are really frustrated by the status quo. They're being squeezed on in academia. They're basically on this kind of publish or perish hamster wheel. And they're constantly putting out sort of low quality data because they're forced to, to in order to stay relevant. And then the journals themselves are just not really incentivized to replicate things. And, and so there's this reproducibility crisis. And then on the other side, if they want to go into pharma, they're only really able to do that in limited places in the world, maybe about three or four sort of cities in the world where you can really make a career out of that. And then you're forced into this very patent centric model and a kind of very profit centric model where there is not a lot of flexibility around what you can pursue unless it fits within that sort of commercial model. So there's a lot of frustration around scientists and I think scientists and engineers particularly, but scientists especially are the ones driving humanity forward. And there's some hope, I think, in the DSI community that we can move the needle on some of these problems. The way I would describe it is it's alternative legal and financial guardrails to do science, right? So there was a frustration with the way traditional science and traditional pharma works. It has a lot of problems and gaps. And now by forming a DAO, you're basically forming a different kinds of organization that doesn't have the same or has different legal constraints and also have different ways to fund, in the case of decentralized science, basic research, right? So by being able to fund research through a different kinds of organization with different kinds of money, crypto in that case, you can do research that's otherwise not possible. Bruno Meyer, for example, talked about longevity. Because longevity is otherwise hard to do in the traditional space because aging is not considered or recognized as a disease. So it's very hard to get traditional science funding. So we're talking basically about alternative guardrails. And you, Saba, you're situated in that system. You're pushing legal innovations in that system that can ultimately lead to better science and ultimately better drugs, better pharmaceuticals, better treatments. Would you add anything that I just said? That's pretty much it. Legal and financial guardrails, exactly that. Using the idea that through aligning private incentives, we can also create a public goods. I mean, with longevity, I think there is now, there's a lot of money being, being pushed into the longevity and a lot of money being spent. But you still have these issues, this kind of what they call a valley of death between basic applied research and the basic and then applied or translational research and sort of 10, 15 years plus in order to get the first drug to market through the traditional system, even if aging is recognized as a disease, we might still be 10, sort of 15, 20 years away. But the thing that I'm most excited about, and I think we've been speaking with Sebastian about and the VitaDAO folks is around how can we accelerate innovation by looking at existing molecules, existing drugs, things like diet, supplements, things that have traditionally not been profitable through these kind of novel incentive mechanisms like IP NFTs and things like impact markets for public goods and ideas like prizes and bounties. We can basically create these incentives in a very focused way and get like quite large and disruptive, massive health impact particularly in longevity space, like all of the drugs that we know that have the most promise are basically off-patent drugs. So things like rapamycin, metformin, NMN, resveratrol, looking at diets and fasting, all these things are things which traditionally you can't raise money on. These are off-patent drugs. You can try and tweak the molecules, but if the off-patent drug is just as good and sometimes the off-patent drug can be safer because it's been used 
for sort of 15, 20 or 50 years sometimes. Unfortunately, there's this big, massive lost opportunity. But I think there's also a, an opportunity for a DSI to come in and help fix. Like anything in healthcare, it's complex. So we'll take some time to understand the problem and your analysis. But I want to do something different first. I would first want to hear your solution because you have two particular legal innovations that you work on and then understand the solutions and then work backwards through the problem that the solution is addressing. So can you describe your two key ideas in a nutshell? Essentially, the first one is flexible prize fund. It's based on the idea of something called a health impact fund, which essentially pays out people, entities or companies or whoever they might be for successful clinical trials. So say a phase two clinical trial and the payment out of this prize fund is typically there's a fixed payment from the prize fund and then it's proportional to the health impact of those particular clinical trials. If one clinical trial improves patient outcomes by 50%, maybe they get 50 points. And then another one improves it by 10%, they get 10 points. Say that the amount that's paid out from the prize fund might be $2 million a year. The fund is split in a proportion. Then what happens is that after a while, there'll be a certain number of clinical trials registered to the fund. After, say, a certain amount of time, like five years, they start dropping off, which increases the funding available. And so the, the idea is that this is infinitely scalable. So the bigger the fund, the more people will fund these clinical trials. And why this is interesting is that it allows you to create a marketplace for clinical trial data. Whereas before, you know, you can only really fund patentable research. Now, the valuable thing is it could include an off-patent drug or a dietary intervention or a supplement or even like a, even like a lifestyle intervention, like a meditation or doing sauna or something like that. As long as it in improves patient outcomes and it's a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard for getting doctors to basically pay attention, that basically will give you a return on investment. So now you can invest in these kind of things as if they were investable products. And the way we might do that is through this IPNFT mechanism, but it doesn't have to be that. But basically an IPNFT is a source of investor funding or is a vehicle where, where investors can basically fund, raise money, say $2 million to fund a phase two clinical trial. And then they can, if it's successful, then they're eligible to receive an outcome payment under the prize fund. The amount of money that you get is proportional to the impact point. So if someone just comes along and does this amazing treatment that increases the clinical outcomes by 200% versus like usual care, because that's what you have a comparator of, of a control, but it's a usual care, then they'll get 200 points. And then that's this amazing innovation that will basically get all of the outcome payments pretty much proportionally for that year for five years. The idea is that it incentivizes incremental innovations where there's like a technology winter and then breakthroughs as well. And you get like a quasi-exclusivity as well when you register to the fund. So people can't do like me too type things. They have to come up with a clinically superior treatment protocol. Essentially what we're trying to do is innovate around optimal treatment protocols for what we call unmonopolizable therapies. So as I was saying, things like off-patent drugs, diet, supplements, lifestyle interventions, and then once we've got something that we think is pretty optimal, now we can move to the sort of second idea, which is basically how do we get this through to FDA approval? And this is where you need the large phase three clinical trials. These are typically 20, 10, 20, 50, 100 million to basically fund. Difficult to raise that much money in the prize. But instead, we can use this other mechanism called a pay for success contract, otherwise known as an advanced market commitment. So these things have become more popular with, and used as a policy lever, basically to incentivize private funding and public goods. There's a thing called a social impact bond that's been used to incentivize people to invest in reducing homelessness and prisoner recidivism. But actually, more recently, in the context of COVID, it was used for the vaccines. Multi-billion dollar advance market commitment by the US government under this thing called Operation Warp Speed. And they agreed to basically pre-order these vaccines if they were developed and if they had these particular specifications. And in the same way, you can actually do that with an off-patent drug or diet or supplement or whatever. You can say to the government, look, if we get FDA approval, you will agree to pay us this amount of money, essentially like a pre-order of the treatment. And maybe that's $50 million or $100 million, let's say. Let's say it's $100 million, And that will then give you the incentive to have an investor to go and fund the phase three clinical trials and get it through um, FDA approval. 
And the government is happy with that because on the basis that if they get this very low cost intervention, that's more effective than potentially any other drug or supplement or anything other patented drug out on the market, they can save billions of dollars. So for them, it's like $100 million to save $200 million or $500 or a billion dollars or whatever. So even if the issue, the problem is you have to have a very big payer that is going to save that much money. So it's really restricted in the US to governments like a Veterans Association, a CMS, but and then places with single payers like England, so the UK, Europe, single payers. But maybe health insurers will come on board. But yeah, essentially, it's a contractual mechanism to transfer risk from the payer onto the innovator, the sponsor, so they can take the risk. And if they're successful, then they get a new FDA approved treatment, and then it can scale cost savings for everybody. I just wanted to have the two solutions first because we're going to spend a lot of time understanding the problem in depth and there's many different routes we can take and probably some debates we have. So let's get down to the problem. What's your analysis of how pharma works right now, how the incentives work? Or don't work. The way it works is that if you have a drug, it has to be, typically it has to be what's called a composition of matter, so a new kind of molecule. And this thing has to be patentable. My background as a patent attorney, what happens is that when you publish data, even if you tell someone something and it's not under NDA, then you have no ability to patent that thing. It doesn't matter if this thing could be the cure for cancer. It doesn't matter. Your, your patent's gone. So if you are a researcher and you publish this, you find this uh, particular drug works in mice and you publish that data and you haven't filed a patent and you're not from like a university with a very onto it technology transfer office that's very diligent and files high quality provisional patents or patents at an early stage, which might not be the case. So maybe you'll be in a some like less well-funded country, then you might have just inadvertently sunk that the chances for that drug to get to patients. And this thing is called an invisible problem. It hasn't had received a lot of academic attention, but it's something Professor Ben Royne talked about in his 2009 paper, Unpatentable Drugs and the Standards of Patentability, where he said that basically there's this a lot of screening going on at the early stage behind closed doors. These things are called no-go decisions. And the screening usually happens at, say, technology transfer offices of universities, but it also happens with biotechs and pharma. And the first thing they'll do if you come up with a new drug is they'll look at what's the patentability of this drug and, or can we tweak if the patentability is not good, can we game the patent system? Can we tweak the molecule? Can we come up with a new method of administration? Can we do what's called a derivative drug? But sometimes those options might not be there. Basically, the most essential ingredient of a drug or a therapy is your ability to enforce a monopoly price using a patent. And that forces pharma to go through a very narrow hole if they want to get anything to market. On top of that, you've got to talk about what's the potential size of the market and is it something that, that can basically get enough sales and things like that. So there are these massive constraints essentially for getting any new drug to market. And then on top of that, you've got to spend like hundreds of millions of dollars usually, and particularly if it's a new molecule, it hasn't been tested in humans. So you've got to do preclinical testing. You've got to find animal models that are like similar to humans. And then disease model that reflects onto a human. The phase one clinical trials make sure that no one's being harmed. And then your phase two clinical trials to prove efficacy in phase three. So these things might take sort of 10 to 15 years. And there's been numbers thrown around that basically due to the number of failures, you're talking about one to two billion plus, four billion plus dollars for every new drug that gets to market. You've got about four, one to four billion dollars being spent on R&D. So yeah, massive hurdles to get new drugs to market. And essentially, if you're that researcher that's come up with a treatment or a cure and you're convinced that this works, but you've got massive hurdles before that treatment could potentially help patients. Just to double down on that for a second. So as you just said, when you're a scientist or an innovator and you found a new treatment or a new molecule, you have two main hurdles. One is you need to prove that it's safe and effective, typically with medical institutions like the Food and Drug Administration. United States. So you have to go through something that's called clinical trials to prove that your treatment or drug is safe and effective. And that could cost one to two billion dollars and take 10 to 15 years. And then there's another thing that's called a patent. To clarify, the one to two billion is not the is not money that you pay down, but it's factoring in all the failed clinical trials. So the actual <laughs> cost might be around 10 to 100 million. Correct. Sebastian Bruno Mai actually corrected me too when I said that. Yeah. And then there's another thing that's called a patent. 
What is a patent and why does it exist? So a patent is a form of intellectual property. And basically what it does is it says that if you come up with something that's novel, then you have a right to essentially stop other people from doing the same thing, building the same thing. Typically it's 20 years, but for pharmaceuticals, you can get another five years. However, with a drug, that's typically a new drug, but you can also patent things like methods of use, like method of using an old drug to, to treat a new disease. However, if everyone can buy this old drug and simply take it themselves at home, you can't basically build a business model around suing the entire planet. It's a little bit like what happened with Napster and the record company is going to try and sue everybody. You just can't do it. It's not a, it's not a viable model. So what happens is that pharma companies will only really pursue therapies where you can patent the molecule itself. And when you patent the molecule itself, you can basically stop everyone else making that molecule. And what that means is you can charge at this monopoly price. Typically, like to make the molecule might only cost a few cents, but if nobody else can make it, you can charge $50,000 or $80,000 for particularly for Solvati and these hep C drugs. That was the big controversy. However, they're extremely effective drugs, but out of reach. And typically what happens is that governments and health insurers have to then negotiate. This is why you, for a really good drug or a drug that's slightly better than everything else, you can expect to get, it's called a blockbuster drug, but by the time you get to market, you might have 10 years left on your patent and you could get like $10 billion in sales every year. It's apparent why pharma industry loves pursuing patented drugs is because there's a lot of incentives to basically do that. Yeah. Patents or intellectual property Like it has this analogy to property by which we often mean something like land or real estate, or your own body. It's your property. You can decide what happens with it. And property is typically also indivisible, right? So there is no second version of you. There is no second physical piece of land. There's just one unique version of it. And that's why we have something like private property. So we have a clear decision maker who clearly designs thing there's supposedly like an analogy with something that's intellectual or an idea which already seems weird because ideas are divisible imagine someone would patent the alphabet that doesn't make sense yeah. so nobody would say that ideas are actually property there's a different argument for intellectual property or for patents that says oh, we have a lot of research and development costs. So as an inventor, you need to go through a lot of hoops. So you need to have a patent to protect um, yourself from competition. You have a basically government or legally granted monopoly for 20 years to commercialize and use your innovation before others are allowed to use it. So the argument is this is incentivizing innovation because it gives you a reward for that innovation. There's a great point just to back up a bit around sort of intellectual property generally is, is what you say exactly right. We're, we're trying to create a property right over something that traditionally is basically a public good. So it's information, essentially. Intellectual property is always essentially information. If you write a new book, a screenplay, let's say you get something called copyright. Copyright lasts for this ridiculous period of time, mainly because of interests in the US. So every time Mickey Mouse runs out, they extend it another 20 years. Right now, copyright is basically your lifetime plus 70 years, most countries, or 50 to 70 years. In the US, it's 125 years for corporation, corporate copyright. What that does, and the same with patents as well, is it prevents this thing called a tragedy of the commons, which applies to something called a public good, which as you talked about before, if something like information is non-rivalrous and non-excludable, so non-excludable means once it's out there, information, everyone can benefit from it. Once it's published online and then non-rivalrous, if I use that information, it doesn't stop you from using that information. Then this, there's this tragedy of the commons, basically, which doesn't necessarily apply to something tangible like a car or a house or something like that. Because what it means is that, okay, if I have to, particularly with drugs, if I've got to spend $50 million on clinical trials to get this thing funded and get it to patients so it proves works in patients and there's on top of that is a 80% chance of failure then without some means of stopping other people from using that information or another way for me to get a return on investment some sort of agreement for me to get a return on investment then there's no private incentives for me to fund this particular thing because everyone else can benefit from it so this is called a tragedy of the commons and traditional IP the whole idea I don't I think from an academic perspective and from a logical perspective 
the idea of it is to incentivize people to generate this useful data, particularly, say, scientific data. And we could directly fund research, like we do that with basic research, but to get an investor and to get the, the markets to invest in things, we need a way of basically creating a return on investment. And in order to do that, we have to have these things called intellectual property rights. However, and as I will talk about or had talked about, there's certain areas of innovation where basically they are just public goods themselves. So for instance, I don't even want to say it, but let's say if ivermectin can treat COVID in a particular dose, actually fluvoxamine, there's actually another drug out that's much better. And that has been shown to treat COVID very effectively in Brazilian clinical trials. Unfortunately, there's no way I can stop other people taking fluvoxamine and ordering it and taking it off-label. It's $10 a, a, a course. They just can buy it off-label. And if it costs me sort of $50 million or $10 million to get it to FDA approval, there's no way I can force people to buy my version of fluvoxamine. It's that information is basically a public good. And there is this tragedy of the commons that traditional IP just doesn't, is just not equipped to solve. Just to add to that point, what is a patent essentially doing by giving one inventor or one patent holder a monopoly for 20 years? It prevents competition. So imagine someone found a great way to treat COVID and they would publish it on GitHub on the internet because they like open source. And imagine there would be a world without patents. So that means anyone from India to Japan to Afghanistan could try to reproduce the invention in a small lab and go out and find ways to produce it, to sell it, to distribute it and build a business around it. We would probably have a good amount of competition. With the current system, with the patent system, someone could come and say, I've seen it first, make it into a patent and this way would be able to hire lawyers that would tell all the other competitors, no, you're not allowed to do that. So that one of the criticisms of the patent system is it shifts the competition away from real world competition, from real world innovation. How do I better produce and sell this drug and bring it to market to legal competition? Like who has the better lawyers to get the right patent and enforce it? What do you think about that argument? I'm not sure I really agree on that because, as I was saying, if it costs $50 million to do the clinical trials to prove this thing actually works, I don't think patents are amazing, but there needs to be some way of making your money back. If your clinical trials cost $50 million and you've got a 50% chance of failure, I think you should be allowed to recoup that investment. At the moment, the only way you can do that as a pharma company is to basically patent the drug and make sure it's a new molecule and then stop people from making that new molecule and forcing a patent. If we had no patent, I'm not sure how people, if they have no way of getting that 50 million back or making a profit, I think... Didn't always cost yeah. 50 million. True, that's true. But even if it's 10 million, you're still not going to get someone just giving it to you unless they can make, you know, unless they can factor in what it costs and, in order to, and also factor in the chance of success and be able to make at least 10% return on investment. From my understanding, pharma companies are forced to basically only pursue patented drugs. I don't know if pharma companies are much more profitable than other companies just because they're using patents. It's very high risk and they're spending a lot of money. They might be wasting a lot of money, but that's another question. But it's definitely very expensive to do drug development. So you definitely need some means as a private company to make that money back. Now, if it was very cheap to do drug development and doctors were happy to, with the quality of those clinical trials, like you could definitely bring down the cost of doing clinical trials, that's definitely another way of solving the problem. And then we have a lot more open source and then people might have more ways of collaborating to basically generate strong signals about what's good, what are good candidates. But I still think there is a need to have this kind of something like the FDA or something like, like a big hurdle that forces people to do very large clinical trials in order to basically de-risk it for humans that might be uh, taking that by beginning prescribed that drug by the doctor. Yeah, but there you could also have different designs, how that would look like. I was debating that in episode four with Jessica Flanagan, the possibility that the FDA could have a more certificatory instead of a prohibitive approach, but probably a bit too far to go deep into that. Just the point that I wanted to make about patents specifically is that there's a trade-off. So you might increase the incentive 
for innovation to the inventor by them being able to monetize it for a certain amount of time to recruit their cost of development. But at the same time, you have a loss, and that's the loss of the competition that's not happening because of that patent. So the only way to really adjudicate whether or not patents are beneficial would be empirical. And that would be to look at different markets, different countries at different points in time with and without patents to see whether we have more or less innovation with or without patents. There's actually been some studies that came in that said, okay, the evidence is probably actually very mixed, right? It's far from clear that with a patent system that you necessarily have a more innovative market. Yeah, but unfortunately, if you actually look at those studies, I think the only market that I agree, say in maybe automotive and computers, definitely computers and software, but the only market where that doesn't work is pharma. I think it's quite clear that if there were no patents, then we just wouldn't get a bunch of drugs because there's no other way to recoup your investment unless we had some other way of recovering those costs, which I think are actually better than patents because they make more sense, is that when you get a regulatory approval, then you get something called regulatory exclusivity for, say, 10 years. And that would actually be a lot more rational than relying on patents, which are filed at usually at that, that sort of animal trial stage. Let's focus a bit more on the specific problem that you're addressing with generic drugs. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. The problem with the current system is that pharma companies or VCs need some way of making a return on investment. What happens is that you have a new drug and then it's charged at a monopoly price. And then after it goes off patent, usually around 10 years after it goes on market, it, there's this thing called the patent cliff. They call it a patent cliff because basically the price just plummets from being like $20 a pill or something like that. It might only cost a few cents a pill. And that's because now there's no patent. All these other generic drug manufacturers typically based in, in India and China places like that, they start making the drugs. So competition forces the price down. And that's a great thing. That means doctors, patients benefit, governments benefit. And it's estimated actually that 90% of the drugs, particularly in the US, that are prescribed are off patent or generic drugs. However, the problem is that a lot of these generic drugs, typically about 30% of them, they get more than one use while they're on patent. So, you know, you might have one drug that's extremely useful for one thing, for instance, we talked about fluvoxamine, that was an SSRI, so it used to treat anxiety, and it was found to be useful to treat COVID. I think it's just through an anti-inflammatory process. You know, Viagra was originally like a hypertension pill and it treats ED. There's a lot of drugs out there that have more than one use, but studies have shown that as soon as a drug goes off patent, its chance of being repurposed to treat a new disease drops to almost zero. So imagine if you're out there and you're a patient and you have a disease and all of a sudden it might have been treated by this drug or multiple drugs, off patent drugs, but now there's no private incentives to do the clinical trials to prove that they work. If you prove that it works and you take this drug through FDA approval, there's no way you can stop other people just getting the old drug or for the old use and just taking it for the new use. You can't really build a business case from suing doctors and patients. So that is that market failure you're trying to address. So off-patent generic drugs don't get produced at scale because they're not patentable. So pharma simply says, we could do it, but we wouldn't have a monopoly, so I pass. It's the opposite. These drugs are everywhere. They are being produced at scale. So it's just, pretend it's aspirin or something like that, right? Everyone can just buy it. But you aspirin. can use them to treat certain diseases. You can use them. Anyone can take, say, aspirin to treat cancer or to treat heart disease or something like that or whatever new disease. But the problem is to generate the data is expensive. The pharma company comes in and does the big clinical trial, spends $50 million to prove that it's extremely useful for cancer. There's no way that they can recoup that investment because everyone else would just take a normal aspirin and use it for the new use. But why do they have to do the trials if they are allowed to give it to patients to treat diseases anyway? It's about the data, right? So if you don't have the data there, a doctor doesn't know if it really works. They're taking the risk, even though it's like they can do it. A doctor can do anything. A rational doctor wouldn't uh, wouldn't want to take something off label unless there was a large like phase two or phase three clinical trial showing that it definitely works. Is that true? I thought off patent drugs is a big market and it's widely prescribed for doctors for certain shelling points for certain things that 
kind of everyone knows and agrees on that the drugs are good. Yeah, and they all know and agree on them because there's been large clinical trials and typically those would have to be publicly funded. So, you know, something like, say, for instance, COVID, there was a big public funding of this trial called the TOGETHER trial, um, which showed that dexamethasone could reduce the chance of death if you're on a ventilator. You have to be on a ventilator from 40% to 20%. So apparently saved millions of lives. However, that was during COVID and there's billions of dollars being spent for public funding. But typically, governments and charities are not going to fund large clinical trials. And it's really up to the doctor. And while a lot of doctors do prescribe off-label, it's very risky. And they typically have to get very high levels of malpractice insurance. If things go wrong, they can get in big trouble. So definitely like specialist doctors might prescribe things off-label, but you're definitely in, a, in an area where you don't have that much data. While you can do it, you're taking a big risk. And it probably also can't be recouped by insurance if the doctor would give it to them if it's not proven by clinical trials. Is that part of it? Yes. And this is something I can just go and that's one of my favorite kind of examples is so ketamine is this has been discovered to be this amazing new treatment for depression. It's one of the only new treatments that have come out in the last 20 years with a new modality of efficacy. I think they bind to glutamate receptors in your brain. And basically, it can create a rapid and sustained antidepressant response in people that have not responded to other drugs, other SSRIs, for instance. And also importantly, it can happen within a few hours and it can last sort of days or weeks or sometimes months. So this is very useful for people who are like suicidal and then they don't have any other options. And then they, so they get a ketamine infusion. However, the ketamine itself is an off-patent drug. It's extremely cheap, maybe like less than $10 a course. But it's because it's used off-label, you've got these ketamine clinics that are private clinics and you have to actually pay sort of $1,000 to $5,000 to get these infusions because the doctors have to pay you these very high levels of insurance. They have to be carefully supervised. They've got to screen you, all that sort of stuff. And also, more importantly, the health insurers and government doesn't reimburse them because of these because there are no large clinical trials and no private pharma company is going to pay for them. But what a private pharma company, J&J, did was they patented a tweaked version of the molecule called S-ketamine, which is a left-handed side molecule. It's called an enantiomer. An and uh, But they're charging $12,000 a course. So it's like a 1,200% increase in price, potentially, or more. And then a lot of health insurers also are not going to reimburse that because they don't see it as cost-effective. They say, look, you've got to bring the price down. And then the third point, which I think really drives it home, and this is why I'm really interested in what I'm doing, is that there's there's been a systematic review, which is basically randomized controlled trials all combined together. It's very high level of evidence that S-ketamine is actually less safe and effective for patients than the off-patent version. So here you've got the example of the patent system forcing uh, drug companies to basically uh, create a less effective, potentially less effective drug and give it to patients. And the off-patent uh, treatment, uh, it might be safer and more effective. And this could be just one example of thousands. That's so interesting. I understand it better now. So pharma is has a lower incentive to focus on these off-patent drugs because they're not patentable. They couldn't make as high profits because they have a patent that would be protecting it. So this leads to being a lot of drugs out there that could be very helpful to many patients, but they don't reach scale or the mainstream because it requires more data, more clinical trials to convince more doctors and insurance to cover it, right? Yes, exactly. So now how is your solution filling that gap or solving that market failure? Yeah, I should just mention, it's not that these things aren't patentable. You can patent a new use, but then you can't enforce it. But moving on, how we propose to solve this market failure is essentially recognizing that it's not actually the drug that is important to doctors and patients. What's important is the clinical trial data. And that's the same even with patented drugs. When you're buying a patented drug, the drug itself is usually like very cheap to manufacture. It's just an industrial chemical in some ways. And that's why generic drugs are so cheap. What you're actually paying for are the expensive, long clinical trials to prove that this molecule is safe and effective in humans. It's the data that's important. What we're proposing is to create a market for that data and say, if you fund the clinical trials and prove that and show that these large clinical trials work, 
then we will agree to purchase that. We will basically agree to pay you a specific amount or we'll, we'll calculate in advance a formula to pay you according to how well that drug does in clinical trials. There are actually formulas that health insurers and governments already use. It's something called a quality adjusted life year and that's how they value new drugs. They just say, okay, one quality is basically the price they're willing to pay to extend your healthy lifespan by, by one year. And typically in most Western jurisdictions, it's around $50,000 a quality, although for some cancer drugs, end-of-life drugs might be $150,000 or more. But typically that's what they use. So with this mechanism, instead of paying for a monopoly price for the drug, so using qualities that basically charge, allow you to charge a big price, they say, we, with the prize fund, uh, we would just essentially pay for the clinical trial data based on how well your clinical trial does versus usual care. So the percentage improvement versus usual care will give you a number of points. And we can either put a price on those points or those points determine how much of the prize fund you're eligible to receive that year. So that's a way of putting a price on that data. And then with an advanced market commitment, we can just say, okay, given this particular treatment protocol and the clinical trial results we got in phase two, if we can get this through FDA approval, how many qualities is that worth to you? And then they just come up with a lump sum, say $100 million or $250 million, and they just agree to pay that every year to you if you take those drugs and take them to market and also market them to doctors and things like that. So how does the IP NFT come into play now? And why does the IP need to be on an NFT? How does blockchain technology allow what was otherwise would it otherwise be possible? Yeah. So like with most things, I think there's no need to do blockchain. Like we can, even with say a smart contract, we could do things off chain. What I proposed in my original thesis eight years ago before blockchain was even really a thing. But I think there are definite advantages to having these things on chain. And particularly, I think the community is very much engaged in the idea of funding public goods and creating markets for public goods and these impact markets and things. So through this, say, idea of retroactive public goods funding, we're now incentivizing people to create public goods and funding them. But typically, say, with a Gitcoin, it's like grant funding or this thing called uh, quadratic funding, where basically it's like a supercharged grant where the more kind of little donations you get, like the more kind of the matching donation you'll get behind it. But typically, these things could be just done with traditional crowdfunding, right? You don't necessarily need crypto. And the same way, IP NFTs could be done off-chain. You could just like create a new company if there's a prize fund and say it's a Web2 prize fund. It's like an X prize or something for repurposing off-payment drugs. And you could just do a typical company, raise money and shares in that company and sell those shares. But what an IP NFT does is it basically lets you really be a lot more targeted, particularly a lot more early stage. And this is what I'm excited about. You could get an IP NFT that basically represents a particular treatment protocol for, say, an off-patent drug or the research that comes out of a particular lab that's looking at this. And you don't necessarily need to set up a company or anything like that. You can just now issue that. You can mint that IP NFT and you can fractionalize it and sell it to a bunch of people, say, through, through Syndicate or whatever, some sort of platform it would in my view although there's a bit of controversy around this and we are working on this with BetaDAO I think there's potentially some securities concerns about it that might be deemed security and things say everyone investing in that is an accredited investor and now you've raised the money to basically do a clinical trial but you're not going to be getting people investing in it unless they see some return on investment and that's where this retroactive public goods funding or this prize fund comes in And it says, hey, you could get a share of this $2 million that's paid out every year for up to five years. And maybe you as an investor, you go, look, you do your financial models, you work out the net present value and you say, okay, I think I can make 10% return every year on this. I think there's a more than 50% chance of the clinical trial being successful. Here's a million dollars. And so the market can price it in. And let's say that they don't think it's worth a million dollars. They think it's $500,000. Well, you can combine that with a Gitcoin, like a direct public funding as well. So you can do like a private public partnership. And this stuff can happen in real time. And then you might be trading the IP NFT in real time. Are you generating signals about, and then you might have a syndicate that's very good at picking the winners. And then that syndicate has a token and the, and the value goes up in price. So you can get access to the super intelligence of the markets, I think, and get liquidity at much earlier stage, I think, through IP NFTs versus, versus like doing it off-chain. I agree. In a way, it can reduce simply the transaction costs, right? If you tokenize or use an NFT to do a contract or 
right IP or patents that makes it easier to buy and sell it ideally when you can put it more easily on the marketplace you have it in wallets so you could make the whole market more liquid by being by making the thing the token more easy to trade with a lower transaction cost right yeah exactly i think this is the whole point of crypto this is what it's there to do but i'm more excited actually by the retroactive public goods funding side so maybe we say we can say we're interested in a particular disease and then what if we want to treat mental health with psychedelics? Why not create a, a source of retroactive public risk funding? So the prize where we say, this is what we all want, better treatments out there. We want an open source psychedelic treatment that's low cost that the whole world can use and the optimal treatment protocol to say treat depression. And we're willing to pay for that data. That's what crypto allows us to do. Board Ape Yacht Club and things that's worth $3 billion in less than a year. Why not issue open source medicine NFTs for a specific disease class or so open psychedelic medicine NFTs. And this is something we're actively working on right now. I think that's quite exciting is that because for the right project, if there's good memes around it, they can all ape in. And with a prize fund, you basically de-risk because you're only paying for successful clinical trials. You have people put $50 million into sort of something quite silly, really, like buying a copy of the constitution based on Nick Cage memes. What if it was to like help treat or cure depression or trauma using an off-patent a drug or a psychedelic? I think that's really the real potential for Web3. So both the retroactive public goods funding side and the prospective impact investor side. But it's still ultimately up to the holders of the NFT or the token to decide whether or not the patent is available open source, right? Yeah, we could have, if for the prize fund, we can actually specify that this is, we're only going to pay for something that's off patent, for instance. So you can have criteria there in the smart contract to say, we will only pay for that if it's off patent. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But then what that also allows, actually, if you say, if you're a research, let, let's say you're a researcher and then you've got a, an IP NFT, which basically the IP NFT represents all the research that comes from your lab. And it's linked to something called a contract research agreement, let's say. And it says the investors now basically have a right to the IP that's generated by your lab and they have a right to file a patent. Let's say you, you search through all these clinical prescription databases, you find evidence of drugs that might be very useful to, to improve longevity. And that's what's happened with VitaDAR, right, with the Morton's lab. And they had an IP NFT on that. But these drugs are off-patent drugs, so they're not an investable proposition really for a VC under the current model. There might be reformulation patents or something that you could get. What this allows, though, if you've got a prize fund, is for, say, an open source prize fund, is that you could split off that IP NFT, create an open source IP NFT, and that would then be eligible to potentially you could raise money on that open source IP NFT to do clinical trials and receive outcome payments from this open source prize fund. And at the same time, you could have the traditional IP NFT that goes and files a patent and does a reformulation or something like that. So it's a way of, I guess, getting the maximum amount of value as an investor out of an IP NFT and playing on both sides of the market. I like that basically through crypto and through blockchain, we're, as we said in the beginning, building alternative legal and financial guardrails, basically to make an innovation possible that's not possible or the odds are stacked against it under the current system. Ultimately, aren't you trying to find a business model how you could make innovation work open source in pharma, right? You don't rely on traditional patent protection, or at least it's much more liquid, and you allow for the possibility of the users or the owners of the IP, not necessarily the patent, to make it open source, to have it available. Exactly. This is what exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a business model for open source medicine. And the business model is through bounties, essentially a little bit like the open source community works now with bounties. We do the same thing, but with, with medicine. And yeah. yeah, I love it. I think it's a very elegant way to work within the constraints of the system to ultimately try to prove or provide an alternative, right? You don't just, there's other ways to become a profitable company or a profitable organization other than being a big pharma company that is protected by these patents and is therefore also only looking for or investing in, or VCs are only investing in sort of drug developments that is patentable instead of the ketamines of this world, 
where there's a lot of potential that just doesn't have the right business model right now. Yeah. And the thing that I'm most excited about is there's this thing called eRoom's law. And basically it's like Moore's law in reverse. So farmer productivity is like slowing down. And, and on top of that, it's costing, as we're saying, potentially a billion dollars to, to make a new drug. With these new open source systems, you've got a potential to basically bring the costs of drug development down by over 100 times and to get new therapies out sort of 10 times faster. Because if you've got an um, existing drug, you can actually start late stage phase three clinical trials straight away and get to FDA approval within a year or three years, maybe only pay like a tenth of the amount versus you know, having to go through that whole process of doing the animal models, phase one, two, three clinical trials, 10 to 15 years later. For patients and things like that, and also pharma companies, these open source models might outcompete patented drugs. And basically, ultimately, it's really about getting the best science funded and getting the best scientists funded. I think that's what it's about. And not having these constraints, not having these artificial constraints of the patent system. That's what kind of got me into this whole area, this frustration that we've got perfectly good science, but it's not getting funded. And on top of it, the only options these people have is to get grant funding, where they've got less than 10% chance of being funded. And if it's a large clinical trial, probably very low chance of getting funding unless you've got these very centralized bodies that do all the grant funding. And there's a lot of professional jealousy and things like that. And a lot of the charities that are supposed to fund these things, they just fund basic research or more controversially, a lot of the funding from the large, say, cancer charities, more than 50% of their funding might be from big pharma companies. And so these charities basically act as marketing arms for, the, for big pharma. And so there's these per, the conflicts of interest as well around that. This, these new models, and I think with crypto, it's uniquely geared towards maybe avoiding a lot of these centralized structures. And basically, particularly if it's a protocol, you can just publish it and it runs by itself. And so it's, it can potentially have some big, very disruptive impacts that might not be available if you have to do things in a traditional way. I love it, everything about it. And I think these are the kinds of better financial and legal guardrails that we need to build. At the same time, I still have a bit of a problem where I think, still think one of the big factors that magnifies Irum's law wouldn't yet be solved, which is the clinical trial and for drug development and approval process. What I've talked about previously is the possibility of using novel jurisdictions and medical tourism and collecting clinical trial data in different places around the world, right? You can already utilize Australia for doing cheaper clinical trials. What if we can build more jurisdictions that remove some of the bureaucratic obstacles to do some of these trials, or maybe even like a certificatory body? right, that is using other ways to prove safety and efficacy, right? The way clinical trials are designed right now haven't always been this way, right? They have changed a lot over the last 50 years and have caused the room's law, probably, to a large degree. So there might be better ways to do these trials, cheaper and faster. And it might also be possible to unbundle or decentralize safety and efficacy testing. Who says there only should be one certificatory agency that's allowed to tell everyone else, only if we allow it, are you allowed to take it, right? I'm all about that. I think it's an interesting area of innovation. And definitely, so if you look at it, there's, there's, a, there's a supply side, which is basically the expense of generating the clinical trial data. And if definitely, if you can bring down that cost and maintain high quality through, say, decentralized trials or people wearing wearables or th things in a reliable way, or these community groups for patients like me or other kind of more decentralized implemented ways of patients to share what they call real world evidence. And then also what you talk about medical tourism and things to generate high quality, high reliability data. That, and that's a great thing. Where we're focused on is the demand, generating the demand for the data. They're both going to help each other. And I think if there's more demand, if we've got a sort of a mechanism to put a price on that data to create a marketplace for that data, that's going to also incentivize people to, to generate more high quality data and, and deliver it in, in a way that actually improves patient outcomes, which is what everyone wants. Fantastic. What's the status right now with VitaDAO and Molecule? What's already available? What are the concrete use cases that you see 
as furthest ahead in showing that this model can work. We're trying to basically get a pilot together. We're speaking with governments and whoever will talk to us, really. The UK presented to the NHS around pay for success, our models for generic drug repurposing. We've done a few conferences. I'll be speaking at Wonderland in Miami on the 3rd of November. It's a psychedelic conference about using pay for success to incentivize psychedelics. And we want to do an open source, open psychedelic medicine nft drop as a way to raise money we've got a artist uh, michael pierre price who's put together 101 unique nfts using uh, mid journey we're trying to basically create a market essentially and, and find that product market fit so nfts has taken a bit of a dive uh, i think recently so maybe it's not the best one but the idea of an nft i think is still very powerful and as a sort of as you say a bit of a shelling point way to get people to understand and create this source of retroactive funding. Something we're really excited about, and I don't want to really jinx it, but I guess I can talk about it and that might not happen, might happen, but definitely have been getting a lot of positive conversations going as a new company or a DAO. It's called Love, Love Health or Love Inc. It's a gentleman, Ryan Breslow. He's one of the he's one of the youngest billionaires. He created Bolt.com, which is a competitor Stripe. He's a real, he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a scrappy guy. He goes on sort of Twitter threads and he calls out Silicon Valley for being a mafia, basically for not investing in Bolt because they were basically investors in Stripe. And he, and now he's he's really really interested in this whole area of incentivizing development of therapies where basically these unmonopolizable therapies are the same thing we're we're talking about these what other people would call alternative medicine, but essentially it's just medicine that is unprofitable. And the way he had this really serious back pain and he went to the doctor and I don't know if you've been to the doctor, typically when you've got back pain, not very helpful. They might offer you drugs that you get some things you might get addicted to or offer surgery. It's got a very low chance of working. And so it wasn't really an option. Then he went to more of a holistic practitioner that prescribes some more physical therapies, yoga, other things like that. And that fixed the problem. And so that's when he realized. And I think a lot of people have that understanding that this sort of the traditional medical establishment is missing a trick. We need mechanisms to fund these kinds of things because a lot of them are going to be extremely effective and low-cost ways to improve public health. And so his idea is basically to get a DAO and to raise money in the DAO and essentially become like a charity model where they directly publicly fund research into these kind of alternative remedies. However, with our model, we can basically de-risk that funding but he's a fundraising machine apparently they've already raised the valuation is that 180 million and might be 300 million if he does another raise so we're very hopeful that combining that with this prize fund model we can basically we've got this engine now to basically solve that problem of knowing which clinical trials to fund and then you can push that off onto the market and particularly through this ipnft mechanism you can basically have a lot more liquidity and have the markets basically solve for how to improve the health outcomes Sava, what are you most looking for right now? Are you looking for investment, for hiring, for what allies should approach you and how can they find you? We're looking for all the help we can get. We're looking for yeah, devs, marketing people, but ultimately like sources of retroactive funding. We're happy to talk to investors that are interested in the space. What would be great is to get people that wants to help create a market for something that hasn't previously had a market. So something like a depression, where there are potentially low-cost psychedelics that can treat depression like ketamine, LSD, MDMA. Particularly ketamine, I think, is a really low-hanging fruit. It could be save, save a lot of lives if it only had a market to, to incentivize people to do the clinical trials. I think that's our biggest need, really, is to convince payers and people to back this retroactive public Fund, good funding mechanism. Fantastic. We heard a super interesting use case of how to use blockchain technology by building better legal and financial guardrails to change the real world, to disrupt and change the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. Uh, Saba, I think it was really fantastic of you to walk us through how specifically two of your key legal and financial innovations, the Health Impact Fund and the IPNFT, can guide us on that path to a sort of more open source medicine future and unlocking a lot of medical innovation that's currently held back. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sava. Thanks so much for having me and super also excited about what you guys are doing with Prospera. And I think these things are also going to go hand in hand with like the DSI movement and looking at new ways to 
to fund public goods and help solve a lot of the problems that affect everybody. Exactly. And if you want to come here and listeners want to check it out on November 18 to 20, we have a conference in Prospera called the Prospera Crypto and Fintech Summit 2022. You can go on infinitafunds.com. That's infinity just with an A fund.com to find out more about the conferences and join us here on this beautiful island in the Caribbean on the Rotat. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. That's got great 